Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frankly, the energy podcast for founders. I'm your host, Siobhan Clark, where I'll be dealing it straight to you from entrepreneurs who have scaled and failed, investors who are passionate and seen it all, and leading tech voices that are looking to build moonshots to change the way we live. Hello, everybody. My name is Steve Cook. I'm one of the operating partners at BP Launchpad. And I'm here to host a series of podcasts, part of our overall, frankly, series of conversations that are focused on talking to some of our CEOs and founders from the portfolio companies we have in Launchpad and really picking their brains about things that they've learned, some of the practical issues that they've dealt with as they've scaled some of their companies over the past two or three years. And just as a reminder, Launchpad at BP is our business scaling capability. So we're here to scale new digital platform companies for the future of the energy system. And so great pleasure for the first one of these to welcome Mike Popham, who is the CEO of Stride, one of our portfolio companies. So hello, Mike. Good to be with you. Hello, Steve. Looking forward to today. Should be good fun. Fantastic. So maybe just a quick introduction from you, Mike, about who you are. Yeah, so Mike Popham, as you've already said, I'm the CEO and, and I was also the founder of Stride. come from a, a bit of an unusual background for someone, I, I guess. I started my life in uh, defence and aerospace, really learning how to design, develop and bring to market new technologies. Then moved into the oil and gas space with BP, where I was really commercialising technologies and also project managing new new inventions. One of those inventions is the technology which now central to Stride, but I guess we'll cover that later on. Why don't we just do a quick introduction to the company as well now so that people have it in their heads as they're listening to what you're talking about. So what, what is Stride and, and what does it do? So yes, good question. Strider, a seismic technology company. Our mission's to really let clients in any industry benefit from very high definition seismic. And, and seismic is a bit like ultrasound of the earth. So understanding both uh, the rock layers and their properties, um, sometimes many kilometers below the Earth's surface. What's different about Stride or our technology is that it makes seismic more affordable, safer, faster, and also with a much lower environmental footprint. You talk about seismic, and for people not familiar with that, it's basically like taking an image of what's under your feet. So 3D picture of what's under the ground. And so who who uses that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, oil and gas has traditionally been the biggest user of it, and, and that's still the case today. But um, uh, and, and oil and gas are using it, for example, to explore for new hydrocarbons, but also once they've made a discovery to increase the recovery, work out where to drill wells, et cetera. Um, what's, what, what our working theory was with Stride is that a lot of other industries could benefit from it, but in, until now they've been... Um, locked out of using seismic by the the price point the economics um so today we're doing business with a whole range of industries beyond oil and gas so we're doing a lot of work in geothermal mainly in europe um so people using our system to understand um, what's the geothermal potential in a given area, typically around cities or industrial centres. Once they found that potential, actually working out where to drill your well. Doing a lot of work in mining, so people using this to find metals mainly, which obviously are quite important in the energy transition and, and the move to electrification of transport, for example. Carbon capture underground storage is another area. Again, people looking for both the potential to inject CO2, but then also crucially um, through time doing repeat seismic surveys to monitor where the CO2 is going and 
proving it safely being stored under the earth. Also, other industries have been doing all sorts of work, seismic risk, so assessing what the likelihood of a repeat earthquake is, say, in an area that's had an earthquake. We've even been doing work in archaeology, so quite a diverse range of industries are actually using seismic now, which is partly what we were trying to achieve with Stride, so it's very encouraging. Well, that's fantastic, and I think that's one of the very cool things about what Stride does, is it's it's almost democratised that, that technology, which for a long time was really only available to the oil and gas industry, as you say, because of the high cost of doing it. And with the stride technology, I guess a lot more people can use it. And so it opens opens up the possibility to some of these new industries, as you say, which are much more about sustainable energy and, and other uses. So geothermal, as you say, and carbon capture, sequestration and storage is really interesting in terms of the markets that are opening up. So when you introduce yourself about the transition that you successfully made from corporate employee in BP in a large organization, into a small startup uh, with Stride, and you know you've made that transition really successfully now to a to a CEO of a rapidly growing company. So tell us a little bit about that journey and what have you learned in terms of your own leadership style and the resilience and the practicalities of that journey, if you like. Yeah, I'd, I'd say first of all, it's been um, amazing fun, but also a huge amount of work. And I think anyone considering that switch um, needs to recognize life is life is very different in a startup to a corporate. And I guess it, it is helpful to give some examples. I think um, in a corporate, for, for nearly everyone in it, um, normally you're not the person making, making some of the decisions at least. Whereas if you're suddenly leading a startup, everything's flowing to you. So kind of be, be comfortable making relatively rapid fire decisions um, quite quickly. Um, that, that, that was a big difference for me. I think the the pace of a startup is significantly faster. So um, things that I'd expect, in, and I've been in a couple of very large, very good corporates, where, and, and I did enjoy being there, but things that might take a, a couple of weeks for a corporate to consider, you're kind of looking at considering in, in several hours because that's the time frame you've got. And I think coming back to the work side of things, you've got to be prepared to, particularly for the first six months to a year, which is organized chaos, if I can put it like that, you've got to really be prepared to kind of set aside lots of other things and really launch yourself and, and live and breathe um, your company because it's, I, I think that that rapid that rapid startup phase where there's a risk there's someone else um, doing something similar to you, a race to be, being first to market, you've got to be able to dedicate a huge amount of time and energy towards it. So, so those are the main things I've learned. Um, in terms of my corporate background, I, I'd kind of, I'd, I'd never thought I'd be doing this job, being open um, or in a startup, but um, I had deliberately selected roles in corporates so that I'd be positioned to kind of lead a technology division. So, so I used my corporate life to gain the experience I wanted. If you were sort of to look back at, at your corporate self and sort of provide some advice for people who might be thinking about embarking on that journey, is there anything that you would have done more to prepare yourself? What would your advice be? I'd say it's hard to prepare yourself. I think um, exposing yourself to some of the techniques and methods that startups use. So for example, if you're not familiar with Agile or Scrum, definitely get a grounding in that because a lot of the more traditional methods you may have seen at corporates aren't really going to work in a startup. So so there is a bit of um, researching how startups work and what makes them faster. I think that'd be helpful. I think the other side is just... um, Really considering, do you want to do this? And then if you want to do it, just go for it. Um, I, I'd thought about something similar before, and, and I always had that nervousness of what, what happens if it goes wrong. And I think actually, even if it goes wrong, you'll learn a huge amount in a startup, and then you'll probably be more marketable if you choose to go back into corporate life. Um, so, so those are a couple of bits of advice. I'd give. And would you say you've had to adjust your attitude to 
commercial risk as you've as you've done that journey? Um, yeah, I, I think the startup you it's it's a fine balance act because you you've suddenly got a more finite um, resource pot. So when your money's run out, you'll run out, and you need to go and convince an investor to give you more funding. So so you need to be cautious with your funding, but equally. Um, in some areas, you are more open to taking risk than you might be in a larger organization. I, I guess as well, if I if I look at um, this technology, the, the technology which is now now Stride use, when we're in BP, um, decisions you might make, um, the, the payback may not be sufficient for a company like BP. So there are certain decisions you'd deliberately overlook because you go, well, actually, for a, a corporation of this size, it's not really worth doing this. Whereas for a startup, actually, with your independent profit and loss, um, a small amount of money suddenly could make certain certain opportunities worth taking. Um, so yeah, I think we, we still yeah. very much consider risk, but um, often often you can move a bit faster, take that take that smaller risk more quickly than you might be able to in a corporate. Fantastic. So maybe shifting gears a little bit and talking about some of the specifics about the build out of the business over the past couple of years. So Dried uh, had to build out an international mass manufacturing capability. So at the core of, of Stride, I guess, is these very small microphones effectively to record the uh, the sound waves as they bounce from the subsurface upwards. And that's really at the heart of the innovation of the technology, isn't it, in Stride? You have to manufacture hundreds of thousands of these things and they're about the size of a cigarette lighter or something like that so but you had to build up that manufacturing capability from scratch and so and do it in a very short space of time how did you approach that challenge yeah it it was a very big challenge so thank you for calling that out um i I think the first thing we did was really early on recognize that getting that manufacturing capability up and running was a key priority because without without product obviously we couldn't couldn't bring in revenue day one we worked out actually creating an effective mass manufacturing capability is extremely important for us um, so we went out and actually um, hired both an experienced procurement and supply chain lead and also a manufacturing engineer so we we had the people in-house from day one to actually look at this problem and and try and solve it we then went to market and, and I guess we were fortunate in in year one we produced half a million units and, and that's enough to get the attention of quite a high tier of supplier, which really helped us. So so, it, so we went through a kind of more or less a standard tender process, but we were able to access pretty much any supplier in the market we wanted to, which really helped us. From there, it was a case of um, finding the right partners, and we're, we're confident we've done that. The, the suppliers we've got have done a fantastic job. We also, while we were tendering, we're looking at the lead time. So, so it's, in the, it's in the news now, but um, there's a global electronics chip shortage. It, that actually was starting to boil up a couple of years ago while we were forming Stride. And we, even at day one, we were looking at things which had kind of a year lead time and going, oh, God, this could really, really limit our growth. So, so we also took some risks. And I guess this links back to your commercial risk question. We were buying some of the longer lead time components before we had a final um, assembly partner uh, just, to, just to make sure we could bring our product to market as quickly as possible. Um, and, and the rest is, is history and a successful history. I, I guess that the challenge is, the challenge never stops in this area. So now it's about that the challenge we face today is um, keeping those long lead components coming in as the electronics chip shortage makes them longer and longer. So, so making sure we've got enough components to feed our supply chain. But um, it's all going extremely well. And uh, which is a fantastic uh, credit to the team and um, and to you in terms of of leading that. 
And, and how has COVID affected that whole process? Because you've done a lot of that in a lockdown situation as well. I guess there's several answers to that. I, initially, it was, a, oh, what are we going to do? Because uh, this is clearly going to alter the world. And, and it also, COVID coincided with a, a big oil price drop as well, understandably. So, so uh, there was a business reaction, a manufacturing reaction. The business reaction was actually very positive. So um, we, we recognized it was a challenging environment. We recognized our initial main revenue stream. So oil and gas clients were unlikely to spend. So that, that meant we fast forwarded something. So we'd always had this theory that we could really help, um, if you like, uh, clean energy and, and mining markets help. But suddenly COVID meant we had to focus on those immediately because they were still working, whereas other industries weren't. So. We actually bought, um, we accelerated creation of a new product line really tailored for those markets. And, and thank God we did that. That really helped us in our first year. On the manufacturing side, I, I think um, it's it's had a, a number of effects. So it's increased um, shipping times, for example. It's much harder to ship things in and out of countries. In many countries, once there's a COVID case in a port, the port shuts for a period. Um, so, so we've had to be far more um, ahead of the game and have contingency plans whenever you're looking from shipping goods or components from location A to location B. You also have to factor in the chance that there could well be factory closures anywhere in the world at any time. So um, I guess at times we've got ahead of the game in building stock or inventory um, so that when that outage comes, yes, it affects us, but um, hopefully we can minimise the business impact. So th- those are the main changes made for us. Great. And and so you mentioned there one of the other big, I think, uh, challenges you had setting up Stride from scratch, which is in order for a business like this to have a chance of success, because you're in a um, in a market that is business to business, selling to complex corporate clients, long lead times, as you say, and sales cycles, which really has meant that you've you've had to be an international business from day one and have a sophisticated approach, I guess, to potential customers. And with a very small team, what has been your approach and and your advice to other companies finding themselves in a same position where you have to you have to be international from day one? No, it's a good question. I, I actually think most companies, most startups will need to go international. There's very few markets that are big enough to sustain you at the rate of growth you want without going international. So it's a challenge that most people in my situation will face. I think certain things we've done um, recognized early on that will need to uh, need to go international. We, we spent a lot of time focusing on which markets were most important for us to operate effectively in. So early on had this structured plan of, yes, we're going to open entities. So for us, um, open entities or, or branches in, in the US, in Russia, in the Middle East, in Europe. So, so recognize you're going to need those markets, set up the entities and actually hire people locally. As much as everyone's been restricted in what they can do, having someone on the ground has been helpful. Um, it's also an area where BP Launchpad were really helpful for us. So BP is a huge international um, corporate all around the world. has got a lot of expertise in in setting up these companies or, or entities. So we're able to call on that. It's something I'd never done personally before um, joining Strong. I'd never created an international entity. So, so that expertise helped us a lot. Um, I think also that it, everyone's got the challenge where you can't go out to meet people face-to-face unless you've got people on the ground. So, so from a hiring perspective, um, actually be willing to, if you have a couple of good telephone interviews rather than saying that normally I'd want to meet someone in person and kind of get to that stage where you're you're comfortable with remote interviews hiring someone if you think they're the right person. Fantastic so again leading I guess nicely into probably the most important thing for any 
business uh, and especially a rapidly scaling one, which is people and talent. So in terms of building your team, what have you learned about, about bringing people in and about creating a culture and a team that has enabled you to do what you needed to do? I think, first of all, I've recognized there's a huge amount of really high quality talent that wants to join a startup. Uh, fortunately, in our case, it was Stripe. But um, the number of applicants we've had, and particularly from um, corporate backgrounds, is astonishing. Um, had really high capability people for pretty much every job we've posted. So there's a lot of talent out there uh, who wants to join a startup, obviously, if, if it looks an attractive startup. Um, I, I think make sure people are interested in your mission. I, I think whether you're start creating a startup yourself or, or joining one, um, it's really important that you buy into what that company is trying to do. It's um, Yeah, I think you need people's hearts and minds on board to be effective. Um, when it comes to the hiring process, I've I guess I've learned, and, and I didn't get this on day one, I always knew it was important, but increasingly I've recognized the, the culture or the, the fit with the culture is almost the most important thing when you're hiring someone. Um, with, with a small company, you'd only need one or two bad actors, as it were, and, and your whole morale could really alter. So um, actually, as well as looking at, is, does someone have the right capabilities, et cetera, also really focus on how are they going to fit with the company? Do they have the right values? Um, how do you, test, how do you test for that, Mike? Test for that cultural fit. Um, part of it's a part of it's a gut feel. Um, we're very open on what our values are as well. Um, ask some questions around those, and and maybe overtly on or or more covertly ask questions which really probe what are they going to be like, uh, or, or are they going to do, do do the values we have resonate with that individual? It's very important. But generally, a lot of it's down to. Um, the flow in an interview, um, how well they gel with the likely hiring manager or the, the team members that are in the call as well. I, I, I wanted to go back to values as well, because um, being honest, in corporates, I understood values and they generally resonated with me. But but in a corporate, I always felt values are being um, imposed on the people in that company, which is, is necessary because you can't really have, say, 20,000 people all creating shared values. Whereas in a, in a startup, we're able to actually um, have a session with everyone in stride at the time. There's about 25 of us and as a group defined values, which made sense for us. Uh, so, so it meant a lot to us as individuals, but also fitted with what we want to do as a company. And, and that's led to much higher buy-in to the values of the company. Well, that's great. And that's, that's a really interesting point because, uh, and I guess, we'll, we'll have to have you back and, and, and talk to us about how that's gone as you hopefully increase the number of people in the team quite dramatically over the next couple of years because you know that I guess that culture represents a point in time for that for those 25 people and then how do you keep it alive uh, as the company grows so to be continued I guess on that front yeah to, to be continued although we're, we're I mean we're only two years old we're up to 54 people today in five countries and, and to date it's still going well I, I, and I guess that shows the pace at which you need to be willing to grow as well we really have scaled not only in revenue but also um, people very rapidly fantastic and uh, long may it continue so in all of the all of the things you talked about and and your experience over the past uh, two or three years what what one thing do you think you'd do differently if you had the chance to to do it again for the benefit of people listening here thinking about similar journeys i think very early on you're bombarded by challenges that you're almost overloaded by all the things you need to do and I think I try to prioritize them so focus on the most important thing early but but be even more brutal and, and in some cases make decisions 
you can't analyze every decision to the extent you'd like to. So kind of almost deprioritize some things which aren't company ending if you get them wrong and take a punt, take an educated guess rather than work through to what the right decision is. So be extremely brutal on what you do do and what you don't do all the time, but particularly early on, and also be prepared to take a kind of gut field decision in a non-critical area to keep the business moving. Those are the two things I'd, I'd alter now, if I could. Perfect. Now, that's a great one to end on. I guess one final thing is the, the Stride technology has been all about miniaturizing things, I guess, in some ways. And I can't help but but notice on our calls that you've acquired quite a miniature companion during lockdown in the form of your, your <laughs> Chihuahua. Any any advice for uh, fellow Chihuahua owners during, during lockdown? Good luck to you, basically. Yeah, Lola the Chihuahua does keep me busy and is completely untrained because of COVID. So um, yeah, I just wish everyone <laughs> the Chihuahua good luck and have fun chasing your, your adorable friend around the house and garden. So even it's an even more impressive feat, I think, to be leading a company with a feral chihuahua in the house. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm looking forward to one day being able to bring her to work, but uh, she's nowhere near ready for that. Can't wait for that. Right. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for joining us and good luck with the next phase of Stride's journey. So that was Mike Popham from Stride. We will be continuing the series with some of our other CEOs and founders in the Launchpad family. Just to wrap this up, uh, follow us on LinkedIn, uh, follow Launchpad. Pad, VP Launchpad on LinkedIn. You can follow us on this series of podcasts on Frankly. Uh, you can also visit the Stride website if you're interested. So it's uh, stridefurther.com and it's stride with a Y. Uh, and you can also visit the Launchpad website at bplaunchpad.com. Uh, so thank you for joining. I hope you found this uh, interesting. Would love to get any feedback, comments, thoughts, or other d- advice that you have after listening to this. And um, look forward to the next conversation. Mm-hmm.